This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. On Wednesday of this past week, President Donald Trump invited teachers, parents, state and district school superintendents, and others to discuss the best way to open schools this coming fall. Chris Neely, superintendent of the South Carolina Public Charter School District, spoke at this event, telling the president that the district would be opening when many other schools are not opening. I met Superintendent Neely on this occasion, and I'm very pleased to have him join me on the Education Exchange today. Chris, it is good to talk with you again today. I trust you had a good trip back from uh, Washington, D.C.? Yes, sir. Dr. Peterson, it's it's good to talk with you, and uh, it was a great trip to Washington. I thought it was a very effective town hall, and lots of great media came out of that about the importance of, you know, reopening schools, getting kids back in the classroom, and, and learning the way they should be. Well, now you're the superintendent of the South Carolina Public Charter School District. Tell me, how are you, what are you doing in terms of opening the schools this fall? Has, has a school year begun yet or is it about to begin and what's gonna happen on day one? So schools are starting to open, uh, charter schools. Some of our schools, quite frankly, have been running uh, summer reading camps um, and scholar camps for the last four weeks. Uh, they're proving that with safety measures in place, that kids can re-enter the classroom, teachers can safely teach, um, dividers on the desk, you know, kids, you know, socially distanced, wearing masks, or in some cases, uh, clear visors so you can see their face, um, all the proper PPE. Um, I went to a charter school last week. They literally had installed outdoor sinks with uh, the proper sanitation and soap so that before you even enter the school building i mean it it actually made me feel good to see that and then you have to you know get your mask and then you can uh register your temperatures taken um you know so we're already seeing some of this and we're seeing that it it can work uh, we have two schools that really come online already so far um that have totally gone face to face and uh we have 33 schools total in our portfolio so the other 31 will be coming online here in the next uh, couple of weeks, staggered, um, but, but starting school. Now, what we've done in South Carolina is our State Department of Education set up what was called Accelerate Ed. And this was a committee of folks, leaders from around the state, who came together to kind of establish policy surrounding school reentry during a period of COVID. And schools essentially have three options. They can run a hybrid version where you, there's a virtual mix, and then you have the in-person. Um, you can have all in-person, um, although not all schools are gonna go five days a week initially. Um, some will uh, alternate days, uh, have A and B days with students. So half the students will come in one day, the other half will work virtually. Um, and then you have some that are just completely uh, virtual. Um, so what are you doing? Are you going to have this half, you know, half time in school, half time on video? Is that the way it's going to be at most of your charter schools, or are you going to have mostly face to face? So we've encouraged face to face. Our our governor has recommended face to face. Our state superintendent of education would like to see face to face, although she has approved plans for all the districts that includes um, options. Um, and then every two weeks, you can reevaluate your, your current plan. 
and see if you can evolve into a full time, five day a week in-person plan. Um, we have encouraged our schools uh, in our portfolio to operate in person, but we also recognize that in South Carolina, our COVID rate um, has really uh, grown substantially over the last two months. And many of our counties are, are in a situation where the hospitalization rate, the ventilator rate, are at a point where the local community's concern. And because our schools are not centralized like a traditional school district, our schools are all over the state of South Carolina. And so they also operate under autonomy. So they have a certain degree of authority at the local level to determine what's best for their school and their children. So we, we recognize that independence, while at the same time, we wanna make sure that they're following what the superintendent of education and the, the governor have, have, have both requested. Uh, so it's a combination, you know, they all are kind of doing their own thing based on the COVID rate and the CDC guidance and the Department of Health and Environmental Control guidance in their particular county. So what is the situation on the transportation front? Because I assume that a number of these students are coming to a charter school from some distance away. And one of the big issues out there is whether or not kids can sit next to each other on the school bus and, and that. So how are you addressing that issue? So in South Carolina, unfortunately, the General Assembly, our legislature, does not appropriate money for transportation for charter schools. And that's one of the policy issues that I wanna work on this next year, uh, because I think if you're gonna have full access and equity in, in charter schools, uh, you gotta provide transportation. Uh, so our, our schools rely on parents to get their child to school. Uh, but I think that that cuts out a lot of kids who would love to get out of a failing school district and get them into a charter school but mom and dad don't have a way to get them there or both parents work and the schedule just doesn't work. So we're, we're going to be working with our general assembly to change that, uh, to, to start put, putting some funding uh, in there so that our charter schools have access uh, to transportation. The ones that do have transportation, which are very few, they have to raise the private dollars to pay for the bus system. Yeah, well, that's a challenge, but of course, in this situation, it's an advantage because you really don't have to worry about that particular aspect because it's up to the parents to figure out how to do it. And you don't have to, because in Boston right now, I'm hearing that there's a huge problem. They, because they're responsible for charter schools, private schools, everybody is transported by the Boston school district. And it's quite a challenge for them, right? Well, for the traditional school districts in the state, it is going to be a challenge. And my understanding is the bus uh, capacity will be cut in half uh, so the kids can be socially distant. But, um, but anyway, you know, that's one of the unique things about charter schools, Dr. Peterson, and you know this, is, you know, we can be creative, innovative. Um, you know, we, we can do things differently and sometimes aren't bound to the same standard um, in terms of that, that piece of the pie uh, here in our state. Well, so in... Uh in the poll that we did at Education Next last May, we found out that the charter schools, the parents who had kids at charter schools said their school was much more likely to have the teacher communicating with their child after the schools all shut down 
uh, in, in April, March, April, and, and May, they were much more likely to say that the teacher was in touch with their child uh, once a day or several times a week, much more likely to have classroom contact uh, than in the district schools. So that I got a sense, and also they were less likely to say their kids learned a lot less. And when they were in districts, as they said, they learned a lot less after the shutdown, not so much in the charter schools. Some of it, some degree of that, but much, much less. So I got the sense that the charter schools were more nimble, more adaptive, more capable of changing to uh, new circumstances. So can you, you agree with that? And does do you have any examples of that? Well, so my, my teenage son goes to our local uh, traditional public high school. And when the COVID occurred, essentially his education stopped. Um, he would get assignments just uh, forwarded to him. Uh, there was no like traditional online uh, schooling. So it's not like you and me where we could see each other and we're talking. Um, he just got stuff passed on to him and then he had to pass it back. That's not, that's not learning. Um, uh, versus what I'm seeing right now in our charter schools, uh, where even those that are going to be doing some portion of, of learning through the virtual, what we've done is created a virtual hub through K-12 so that, so that our schools have the uh, capacity and the ability to continue the education. So let's say you have a situation where you're in person and you're, you're in the classroom and someone gets sick and you send that class home for two weeks. Schooling continues because we've given them the platform so they can continue to learn from home with their teacher. And that's what makes charter schools, again, so nimble, as you say, uh, because we don't, we don't have the, 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 the boundaries on the left and the right the same way the traditional schools. And because they don't think uh, innovatively the way we do, it's just in our DNA, um, I think that gives us an advantage. And quite frankly, I think that's why I'm seeing so many parents leaving the traditional schools and they're signing up to get in line to come to the charter schools and to participate in our program. Because I think this has highlighted, Dr. Peterson, the problem we've got with traditional, the school system in this country. We're failing 40% of the kids. And I think the COVID has, has highlighted a lot of the inefficiencies and the ineffectiveness of that system versus a charter system, which is locally run, locally operated, uh, that is based on a creative, innovative model uh, that really focuses and meets kids where they are and helps them develop an individual learning plan that's appropriate for, for their child. Well, so when you talk about individual learning plan, it sort of reminds me that you uh, have, first of all, you are a a person who's worked a lot in the field of special education and uh, 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 taking special concern for those who are disabled, whether they're children or adults. So tell me, uh, tell me how many of your schools have programs for the disabled and how big a part of that is, is of your charter school network? So all of our schools, obviously, because we're public schools, uh, our doors are open. To, to those learners who have, you know, some learning challenges. I have a son with Down syndrome. When I was the, the principal of our state's oldest charter school, the Meyer Center up in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, he went to school with me. He was learning and he was included with his peers. 
And, and quite frankly, that's one of the disappointing things I'm seeing out of the traditional system. My local school district, the, the traditional public system is only going virtual for the entire first semester of school. So my son with Down syndrome, um, they're saying you're gonna be virtual only. He can't learn to speak if he doesn't get his related therapies. He needs the, the, the occupational and uh, physical therapies that are so important. You can't get that virtually. And more importantly, he needs the peer-to-peer -peer interaction that comes from being in a classroom with his peers and with a good teacher. So what are you going to do? Are you going to place him in a charter school or how, how do you handle So we're having, to, we're having to move my son to another school uh, that is gonna be open. And, he, and, and then we're gonna have his services, uh, as, as my wife spoke at the White House the other day, we then have to take him and get his services um, outside of the school. Uh, but, our, but our charter schools around the state, uh, they adapt to this and they have learners with disabilities and they provide the services. Uh, so, you know, whether it's an IEP or a 504 accommodation, we're, go we're gonna support those kids. Are you making a special effort then to get the charter schools to make sure that the disabled kids get to school all the time? That's that, and, and so we have schools that are designed just for that. Um, we have a school that uh, focuses just on kids with, with dyslexia, Lakes and Bridges. We have another school, the Meyer Center. 90% of the population are kids with an IEP. Um, they have their own transportation programs where they literally go to the, the, the neighborhoods and communities to pick the children up so they can make sure they get to school. Uh, so we're the technology. We're making sure that that is available. We did that during the summer, in fact. So even when they couldn't go to school during the summer, they were still getting their therapies uh, virtually through their therapists that they knew uh, in school. So somebody they recognized they could work with. Uh, so again, it goes back to being innovative and thinking outside that uh, proverbial box. And that's what we're doing. So, you know, the, the, the idea of a charter school district is sort of a new idea to me. How does your role as superintendent differ from the authorizing uh, boards that exist in a lot of states? What's, what's your relationship to the authorizing agency? So we are the authorizer in South Carolina. So the South Carolina Public Charter School is the state's largest uh, statewide public charter school authorizer. Um, we've got 33 schools, 15,000 students. Uh, so we're a you know, mid-sized school district with the number of students. Our schools, as I mentioned earlier, are all over the state of South Carolina. So they're not like local, um, but they're all over the state, but they operate locally with a board and that board and, and school leader um, are our partners. So we authorize them, we approve their charter, and then we provide support to them uh, to enable them to open and then to provide sustainable support so that they can operate. Um, that's what we do. So, so you're a little bit more hands-on. Some authorizers are just, uh, are they authorized and they check back up after five years or something like that. But it sounds to me like in South Carolina, you have an authorizing agency that's a more hands-on, more interactive with your schools. Yeah, we're not dictating, but we're supporting. Um, but we're also making sure that schools are accountable, compliant, uh, because after all, they're receiving state public funds. And so we want to make sure that the money's been spent on programming and academics 
And, you know, so despite the fact these local schools kind of operate like a small nonprofit business, um, they still have to, to answer to the taxpayers and to the legislature. And so that's where we can come in and help make sure they're compliant, that they're doing all the right things and following policy and financial guidelines. Uh, but we're, I see us as, I see them as kind of like our satellite office and we're here to provide all the supports so they can do what they do best and that is deliver high quality instruction for their children. So what kinds of supports do you provide? Is it uh, curriculum and supplies? Uh, is it, um, you know, help with the financial uh, management side? What, what are some of the supports that you are providing? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, we have a system here, PowerSchool. Uh, we provide support there on PowerSchool. That's the accountability system that, you know, keeps track of student enrollment. Uh, we provide supports on the finance side. Um, you know, if they need guidance on their financial audits uh, and so forth, uh, policy governance issues for their boards and for their school. We provide a lot of programmatic support um, and supports when it comes to SPED, 504s, uh, IAPs, you know, uh, training opportunities for them, um, idea exchange networks where the school leaders can all uh, come together. And, and share best practices and ideas. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that we can provide support and, and, and bridge them all together since they all are scattered around the state so that you, you know unified schools can and school leaders can work together um, and the district can can perform and outperform the traditional system which which we're doing. I mean we've increased our graduation rate by 23 points. That's the highest increase of any district any traditional district in South Carolina. Our math and ELA proficiency rates have increased for three straight years in a, in a row. Our African-American student ELA and math proficiency rates are higher than they were four years ago. So we're continuing to, 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 to raise the performance level of all our schools so that parents in the state have the best option when it comes to us. Well, so are there signs that more and more people are interested in sending their children to charter schools? What's your application rate looking like for this fall? Is it, is it up? Is there a bigger demand than in the past? It's not only up, but it's early. Um, we've already got letters of intent from, from, uh, from eight schools already, and we haven't even started the process. Um, so I think that's a sign that local communities are saying, look, we don't like what we're seeing during the COVID and what happened last spring when the schools shut down. We want a better opportunity. And as I met a brand new board this past Monday um, over in Sumter, a new a brand new STEAM school, they told me they were like, look, we couldn't stand it any longer. We're going to organize. We want to charter with you guys and we're going to move forward and put together a great school and give kids a better option than what they have right now. And so well, how much more authorizing can you do? Aren't you limited by how many schools you can authorize by the state legislature? No, sir. We don't have a cap in South Carolina. So the market dictates. And so we can continue to grow and expand. And that's what we're going to do. But these are going to be high quality schools. We want to make sure that right out of the gate, they've got great applications, a great board structure in place, the community support that they need, that the budget and the finances all are aligned. Uh, with what the projections could be on the enrollment. So we wanna make sure that on the front end, they're doing all the right things. And that's where we really can support them, provide them with a playbook 
and make sure they get off the ground uh, on good footing so they can be successful going forward. Well, how many new schools are coming uh, online this, this year? So this year we only have one new school coming online, um, and then next year we'll have uh, we'll have at least eight. Oh, eight is the plan for next year. That's right. Point. Yeah, yeah. and we've also received uh, eight uh, letters of intent. Um, so you know it's an exciting fall. Quite frankly, I'm excited to see the new applicants uh, later this fall and winter, and I'm excited to review those and see what kind of innovative solutions people are, are coming up with when it comes to a charter school. In, in the in in light of COVID, so uh, speaking of COVID, how what if somebody actually uh, is tested positive? Uh, what are what's going to happen? Is the school going to have to close? Are the so is all the kids in that classroom going to have to go virtual? It, it, what what are the rules that you have to deal with uh, a situation where somebody may not feel sick but he comes testing positive? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, um, you know, we have a state standard and I, I, and then we have kind of a district and school standard. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of different things um, because each school, you know, designed their own plan. You know, we didn't design a plan for them. We just reviewed and approved them. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is uh, one school, for instance, here in Columbia, South Carolina, the school leader, I met with them, the students are already there. Their plan is if, if someone gets sick in the classroom, then the whole class goes home for two weeks, but they virtually learn with the teacher and then they come back. Um, and I think you're gonna see you know, those kind of situations. So if there's been a, an exposure, then those people will then go home and they'll learn from home. But the key is they will be learning uh, even when they're home. It's not gonna be the, the cliff that occurred back in March when kids were sent home and, and teachers were just pushing papers back and forth. Well, how about testing? Are you going to do the, uh, uh, when we were in Washington last week, we all got a test before we could see the president. Are you going to do tests like, like that on a regular basis? Or are you going to assume that if you don't see the symptoms, that the kids are fine? Yeah, so I, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to see the, the testing, although uh, all the counties in our state are testing. Our National Guard is, is conducting tests through the Department of Health and Environmental Control. So testing is going on um, and, and families have the, the ability to test. The problem with the test is you could be negative today and get exposed tomorrow. And, and so um, I don't know if the test, I mean, I've been tested twice. You and I both were tested this week. Um, at the White House and got the results back in 20 minutes. But uh, right now the test results, you know, it might take five or six days. Well, you could be exposed during that period. And so I think that's part of the problem with the testing. I think it's going to have to really be symptoms, you know, fever, temperature, um, and, and everybody um, respecting one another. And if you don't feel well, stay at home. So now one of the biggest problems is how do you ever keep kids separated by six feet all day long? <laughs> is this really, really possible? So what I've seen so far in, in the schools that I've been in in the last week is um, I call it the hula hoop effect. You literally take a hula hoop and the kids have to be in their hula hoop and, and, and spread out. Um, so the desks are spread out, 
Um, the teachers, uh, the schools are putting plastic dividers on the desk. Uh, so if they do have a classmate beside them, there's a shield literally right between them. When they're out at play, they have to, they have to be separated. Um, they're wearing the mask. And I think, I think what we're learning, Dr. Peterson, and you know this, kids are a lot more adaptable to these things than we, than we give them credit for. Uh, it's really the adults that have messed up the sandbox here. And so I think if we would just all get out of the sandbox and allow the kids to do their thing, as long as they're wearing their PPE, I think we're going to be fine with this. And plus the, the, the rate of, of, of kids getting COVID is so, so low. Um, so I, I think we're going to be fine. Now, look, I'm not saying that we're going to be 100% protected. I mean, we're not protect. I mean, when I was a school leader a few years ago, we had a horrible flu outbreak. You know, you're, you're not going to take away all risk, but I think our schools are doing everything they can within CDC and DHEC guidance to make sure kids and teachers are protected. Well, sometimes I feel it's, it's too much protection because, I mean, how can a teacher teach with a mask on? How can kids ask questions if they have a mask on? So I worry that we're, we're so worried about, since the chances of a child getting this uh, disease is, is so low, it's like 45 in the country have had it. Um, and you know, as compared to thousands and thousands of older people, and the and yet we're creating this all these rules and regulations that are going to get in the way of education. That's what I worry about. Do you worry about that? I do. I mean, I hope this is the the knee jerk response is not to create more rules and regulations. Um, instead, I hope this is more of a disrupted factor in a positive way. You know, we talk about well at Harvard. You know, you talk about disruptive innovation. I think if there was ever a time for for disruptive innovation, it's right now during COVID in education in America. And I love the debate we're having. I think, I think this is an open opportunity for people that support choice in, in, in public education uh, to stand up and show the innovative nature of what we do in the charter world and expand opportunities for more kids to take advantage of that. So I'm all, of, I'm all about disruptive innovation. I look at that as a positive, And I think COVID has actually given us a gift. Well, that's fascinating, and I thank you very much for joining me today on the Education Exchange, Superintendent Neely. Dr. Peterson, it's a great uh, pleasure to be with you. I appreciate all your great work on this subject and in and, and, and charter schools and the greater education issue. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with Chris Neely, Superintendent of the South Carolina Public Charter School District. Uh, and I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.